So we come to the last miracle that Jesus does in healing a blind, a blind guy. And his name is Bartimaeus. We know his name. Mark tells us his name. His name is Bartimaeus. And this is a foreshadowing of how you receive from Christ. It is a foreshadowing of how you receive salvation. And if you are saved, it's a foreshadowing of how you receive from him. This is a guy that somehow survived three years of Jesus's ministry without being healed by him. Remember, Jesus ministered in the Galilee and he went to Jerusalem, we think, three times. So only three times during the, the Passover did Jesus make that trip up into Jerusalem. There may have been more that we just don't know about, but he wasn't around Jerusalem as much as he was around the Galilee. And Bartimaeus has no doubt heard of him. He's heard of him healing other blind people. Jesus has a, a couple others that he heals by spitting. One of them, he spits on the ground, makes mud and rubs it in his eyes. The other one, he spits in his eyes and then puts dirt in it and rubs it and makes mud and then tells him to go wash it out. And the blind guy's like, no problem. Just point me in the right direction. I'll get this stuff out of my eyes. <laughs> Which is really funny and bizarre. Um, God does things differently than we do them. And, I, and this really helps us to understand that. You know, there's a blind guy and he's gonna, you know, Jesus walks up to him and, you know, and uh, and heals him by, by spitting in his eyes. It's something we would never do, but God does things differently than we do it. And here we have an account of another blind man who receives his sight. The Bible, in over a hundred places, uses blindness as an analogy for spiritual blindness. The Bible tells us that we are that the world is blind and in darkness and that the world is groping and looking for, for truth, looking for light, and that Jesus is the light of the world. He's the one that lights up so people can see. And we're going to see that this is spiritual warfare. There's a lot of books about spiritual warfare. It's one of those topics that people like to get into. And a lot of it is, quite frankly, whack, about as whack as it can be. They, they have no idea what spiritual warfare is really all about. We are going to clarify that today. We're going to talk about what real spiritual warfare is and whether you like it or not, you are involved in it, Christian. And that's not just for those named Christian. That's for all of you guys who are Christians. You are more involved in spiritual warfare than you realize. And I think you'll see that clearly as we get into this text today. So let's get right into it. We go to verse 35 uh, of Luke chapter 18. Then it happened as he was coming near Jericho. Now, this tells us a lot right away. Jesus coming near Jericho. Jesus's name in Hebrew is Joshua. The name Joshua means salvation. God appeared in a dream to Joseph and said, you shall call his name Joshua. So he was given the name salvation. It could also mean deliverance, by the way, salvation or deliverance. And in the Old Testament, one of the names of God, God's called many names throughout the Bible, but one of the names that the Old Testament calls God is salvation and deliverance. God is salvation. God is deliverance. It's one of the names of God. So it's fitting that Jesus had this name. Now it's a common name today, Joshua. Jesus isn't as common, but Joshua is, and it means salvation. Now there was another Joshua and he led the children of Israel into the promised land. And the other Joshua, which was the assistant of Moses, who took over when Moses died and led them into the land, he is a deliverer as well. He is one who brought salvation to them as well by leading them into the promised land. And our, uh, uh, the Joshua we're reading about today, I'm going to call him our Joshua, he's leading us into deliverance and leading us into the promised land as well. 
And the, the Old Testament Joshua, when they first got to the land, the first place that they fought against was Jericho. Jesus is approaching Jericho. And, the Bible, and, and Jericho, by the way, was a military outpost in their day. We know that because we found the ruins, not me personally, but we have found the ruins of Jericho. You can go to it. Now, it's in a Palestinian region and it's always a little bit sketchy, so we don't necessarily go to Jericho anymore. We used to when we take trips to Israel, um, but we, we don't right now. Maybe that will change. Uh, but you could go to Jericho and you could see the city walls. It's, it's not big. It's tiny. It's not like a city you think of a city. And you should realize that when they marched around it seven times in one day, right? Because you certainly couldn't march around Tucson seven times in one day. You'd be like, I'm, I can't do it. I just got to quit. You know, you could drive around it seven times in one day, but that would take even a while, right? So it's small. It's a military outpost. So is Ai. He goes from Jericho, defeats that. Then they go to Ai and they have a defeat. And then they eventually have a victory at Ai. So these two military outposts. So Joshua goes, the Old Testament Joshua, goes to uh, spy out Jericho. When he gets there, a Joshua approaching Jericho, he sees a man with a sword drawn. And so the Bible says Joshua walks up to him and says, are you for us? Or are you against us? And the man answers him and says, no. What kind of answer is that to are you for us or are you against us? No, but as the commander of the Lord's host, I have come. And Joshua fell on the ground and worshiped him. You can read the account. He worshiped him. Only God is worshiped in the Bible by people that are doing it right. The commander of the Lord's host, if he wasn't God, would say to Joshua, get up. We have an angel. When John in Revelation falls down uh, in front of the angel, the angel says, get up. Worship only God. And Joshua falls down on the ground and the angel says to him, the angel of the Lord, which is a Christophany. This is, this is, this is the two Joshuas. It's Joshua and Joshua. Joshua sees Joshua. And Joshua says to Joshua, take your shoes off for the ground you're standing on is holy. It's not like you can go to Jericho today and find that spot of ground that was holy. It's not like you're going to walk around like you're some kind of a diviner looking for water and go, oh, this is it. This is the, take my shoes off. This is the holy ground. It was holy because God's there. And everywhere God goes, he makes things holy. When we invite Christ into our lives, he sanctifies us and he makes us holy because Joshua is with us. And, and so he says to him, take your shoes off because the ground that you're on is holy. And he gives them the plan for being able to take Jericho. Now, you and God's doing a plan and bringing them into the land of, of, of Israel because God wants to cultivate a nation that the Messiah is going to come out of. So they take the land. This Joshua takes the land so he can bring the other Joshua to the world and all nations can be blessed by the other Joshua. So now we have the second Joshua going into Jericho. We have Jesus going into Jericho where all of these things happened. And as he goes to Jericho, it says that a blind man sat by the road begging. And as I said, this is Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus knows he has needs. Uh, we know what the name Bartimaeus means, by the way. It's an, uh, an Aramaic word. In Hebrew, if you want to say son of, it's Ben. So any word that like Benjamin, son of my joy, that's what Benjamin means. The, the, ben is son. Bar is Aramaic for son. So Bartimaeus is the son of honor. Now that's interesting because in their day, if you had a handicap, if you were blind, if you were lame, if you had a major handicap, 
you were thought of as a second class citizen. You were thought of as the reason you're blind, the reason you're lame, the reason you have a handicap is because you are not, there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong in your life. Remember the disciples asked Jesus about the man who was born blind? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This must have been a debate that they would have. When you give birth to someone who's lame, whose fault is it? Is, I don't know what their theology was. I'd like to, I'd like to ask them about it. How did, what did you think this guy could do before he was born that would make him be caused to be born blind? But maybe they're thinking of the foreknowledge of God. God knew what kind of a person he would be, so God made him blind. That's the way they thought of people that had handicaps. Now, we don't do that anymore. And I'm so glad for that. They don't, we don't make them be beggars. We take care of them. Our nation takes care of them. And I believe that's because we are founded as a Christian nation. And I believe it's the Christianity in our nation that really gives us the compassion for people who are handicapped. And that's a good thing. But they didn't think that of him. And so this blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. Now, thousands of people are going to Jerusalem because it's the Passover week. Josephus, a first century historian, tells us that Jerusalem would swell by 200,000 people during the time of the Passover. He also gives the number of lambs that were slaughtered during Passover, and it is phenomenal. So there's a lot of people going by, but Jesus must have been going by with an especially rowdy crowd, excited that Jesus is there, humming about the things that he has done, the miracles that he's done. He does two things in Jericho, by the way. We're going to look at the next one. Next, I think it's the very next study that we're going to do, maybe two studies from now, but he... He transforms a tax collector, a wee little man named Zacchaeus, and he goes to his house and he gets saved and he is transformed. And maybe people were shocked that Jesus walked up to a tax collector and said, I'm going to your house for lunch. But they were shocked even more when he began to pay people off, when he went back to people he had stolen from and gave them four times as much. And they saw firsthand that Jesus could transform lives. Well, before that, they saw Bartimaeus, who they knew well. Jericho in the days of Jesus wasn't a big city either. And they knew this blind beggar that lived in Jericho, sitting by the road and begging, and they would see him transformed. They would see him receive his sight. So hearing the multitude, he asked what it meant, and they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. So that's the direction that they give him. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, again, he must have heard of Jesus. He must have heard that he had healed blind people. He must, the, the, the news of him has spread throughout the whole region. People knew of him everywhere. By this time, it's the end of his ministry. He, maybe he knew that he calmed the seas. Maybe he knew that he walked on water. Maybe he knew that he delivered demoniacs. Maybe he knew that he walked up to blind people and said, pick up your bed and leave and go home. And so Bartimaeus, when he hears this, Jesus, that it's Jesus of Nazareth passing by, he said, and he cried out, Jesus... Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, because Jesus' name is Deliverer or Salvation, he cries out, Salvation, Deliverer, have mercy on me. Son of David. Son of David is another name for Christ. And Son of David is a messianic name. You have the Son of God and the Son of Man. Both of those speak of his deity. And you have the Son of David, which speaks of him being the Messiah. Why? Because when David wanted to build the temple for God, God told David that you can't build it. He was a warrior. He had shed a lot of blood. And God says to him, you have shed too much blood, but a son of yours, 
Solomon will build the house for me, but I'm going to build the house for you. There's a real horrible movie about the life of David. I can't remember the exact name of it, but it has Richard Gere starring as David. So when you know the life of David and then you watch a movie that so just butchers the life of David, I hated that movie. My mom was watching it with me and she told me, I'm never watching another biblical movie with you again. Because the whole time I'm like, that's not what happened. That's not how I felt. That's not what happened. Now, my mom was a respiratory therapist and watching medical shows with her is like a nightmare. So I said, I'm never going to watch a medical show with you again. You just need to know that. They wouldn't do it that way. That's not really how you do CPR. Okay, mom, I get it. I get it. That's not what they would do. Okay, <laughs> I get it. So I'm annoying to watch, you know, Bible shows with. And I just think, hire me as a consultant. Don't that have to be me. Hire some pastor who knows the Bible really well as a consultant to do your TV show. That's going to help you out tremendously. So when God comes to, to uh, David and says, or when David uh, says to God, I want to build you a house, and God says, no, you can't, but I'm going to build a house for you. In this movie, Richard Gere takes a baseball bat. Where he got a baseball bat 3,000 years ago, <laughs> I have no idea. But he takes a baseball bat and he beats his little model of the temple up because he's angry. In reality, what the Bible tells us is that David said, who am I that you would do such a thing for me? David was humbled and moved. And then God said, the Messiah will sit on your throne. He will rule on your throne. And so Jesus will rule on the throne of David forever. What an honor for David that the Messiah would sit on his throne. And we also know that through David, the Messiah would come through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, and through David. Has to be a descendant of David for the Messiah to come. So he's called the son of David. That makes him the Messiah. So Bartimaeus cries out, Savior, Messiah, Deliverer, Messiah. He's, he's saying, I believe you are the Messiah. You are the son of David. He's making a confession of faith. This is what it takes for us to have the spiritual blindness taken away from us. We are all born spiritually blind. And in order for us to have the darkness lifted from our eyes, we have to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That's why this is a, is a nuanced miracle. It's a foreshadowing of how you are saved. And, and for those of you who are saved, it's also a foreshadowing of how you receive from God. Do you need something from God now? Is there something going on in your life? that you need him to move? Salvation, deliverer, Messiah, have mercy on me, which is the last thing that he said. Now, mercy, when you ask for mercy, you are recognizing your weakness. You don't ever ask for mercy from a position of strength. When you've got things handled, when you've got your life together, then you say, you know, I don't need you. You don't ever say, have mercy on me. You're in a pretty bad spot when you say, have mercy on me. And sometimes we need to do that, don't we? Some here today, maybe, maybe more than just some, need to say to God, have mercy on me. I'm weak. I'm in a bad spot. When you throw yourself on the mercy of the court, it's not because you won the court case. It's because you lost the court case and you need mercy. Mercy is when Justice is withheld, but not in a good way. When justice is coming and justice is going to do what justice does when it's bringing punishment and you get mercy.
It's good for judges to give mercy. Sometimes judges go beyond what they should give when it comes to mercy and they put other people at risk and they should never do that. But it's a good thing for a judge to look at the person, to see remorse, to see it and to pour out mercy. It's also good for them sometimes to see what really is there and to not give the person mercy. But he asks for mercy. And this is a place of spiritual poverty, real poverty in his life. And when we realize that we have spiritual poverty and we can't do anything about it, the law does its job. The law reveals to you that you are a sinner. The Bible says the law never saved anyone. In fact, it says the law couldn't save anyone. No one is saved under the law. The law could just show you how bad you are. That's it. But Jesus saves, it says in the book of Hebrews, to the uttermost. He has, he has salvation. Behold, the Lord is coming, the Bible says in the Old Testament, having salvation, which just happens to be the name of Jesus. Salvation. You think God's making a point? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before him warned him, or those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. What a thing to do. This blind guy starts to cry out for mercy and those in the crowd, stop it. You're bothering me. I'm having a nice walk with Jesus. Stop yelling at him. I know you're blind, but you know, live with it. And here we get the idea again that they thought it was because of, a, of, a, of something insufficient in them. They were more of a sinner than anybody else. They were, they were bad people. That's why they were allowed to have some kind of a handicap. And so they tell him to be quiet. And um, when he came near to him, uh, excuse me, uh, so those who went before him warned that he should be quiet in the middle of 39, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And I take it that when he cried out all the more, that it was again and again. When they said, be quiet, he was like, son of David, have mercy on me. And he's passionate and he, and he cares. He's not yawning and asking Jesus to have, have mercy on him. He's calling out to him and asking him for help. So the Bible says we don't have because we don't ask. And sometimes when something's going on, we just get overwhelmed with it and we forget to ask him. The Bible also says that we don't receive when we ask because we ask amiss. We're asking for the wrong things. Lord, can I get a Cadillac? Can I get a, you know, whatever? Give me this, give me that. Bless me, Lord, and that's that. And we aren't going to him with our real needs. Bartimaeus calls out to him. And Bartimaeus is just doing what the Bible tells us to do. Ask and it will be given to you. And it's ask and keep on asking. Knock and it will be open. Seek and you will find. And so he cries out with his passion. And if you need to receive anything from God today, if there's something going on in your life and you need it, then go in your prayer closet, get somewhere alone and cry out to God. Don't be afraid to be emotional and to really call out to God because God responds when we pray in that way. He responds to fervency. God said in the Old Testament, you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. He doesn't reward the casual seeker. The Bible says God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him in Hebrews chapter 11. And so he goes on to say then, uh, bring him here. So Jesus, verse 40, so Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. That's an interesting thing. 
Why would he stand still? Why wouldn't he go to him? Again, Jesus, God doesn't do things the way we do things. And Jesus says, bring him here. And so they get him and they bring him there. And I think that we're beginning now in the rest of this to see a picture of what salvation is really about. In order for you to be saved, God has to draw you. God, Jesus said to the church of Laodicea, which is the lukewarm church in the book of Revelation, chapter three, that you are lukewarm. I wish you were hot or cold, but since you are lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. And then he says to them, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and dine with him. In their culture, dining was close fellowship. I'm going to come in and have close fellowship with you. I'm knocking on the door. When you receive Christ, you are not initiating. You are responding. When you say, Lord, I want you in my life, it's because he's drawing you. There's no one that can say, Lord, come into my life that God's going to say, no, I, I, I won't receive you. Anyone who believes in him for God, the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. No one is going to come to God and say, God's going to say, I don't want you. God's going to call you and he's going to draw you and then you respond by opening the door. There's a famous painting of Jesus uh, knocking on the door for that verse. And you may see it. It's the good-looking, long-haired Jesus. And he's standing at the door and he's knocking. And uh, there's some vines around the door, right? Can you guys get that picture in your mind? Very famous. But if you look at the picture, and you can look it up, just don't do it now, because I'll think you're looking at Facebook if you're doing that. <laughs> Which I guess is okay if you're watching us on Facebook. But if not, but if you look at the picture, there's no doorknob on the outside. The door can only be opened from the inside because Jesus will not force his way into your life. You have the power over the door. You can open it up or you can close it. And so I think this is a picture of Jesus saying, bring him here. He's saying, you've got to come to me. He'll, he'll go to you, but you have to come to him. People argue, is salvation all God or, or salvation God and man? The real truth is you have to receive. He, he, he draws you, you have to receive, you have to believe. And people say, well, receiving is a work. In, in whose book? When, when have you ever received a gift from somebody and said, man, that was work? <laughs> On Christmas morning, your wife gives you a present. Give me that present. This is so much work to receive it. We are receiving a free gift. And that's not a work. It's simply receiving it. And if you don't receive it, you don't have it. That just makes sense, right? If you receive what Christ did for you, you have it. If you don't receive it, you don't have it. And people say, well, why do I have to receive it? Because you won't have it if you don't receive it. So you have to receive it. It just makes sense if you think about it. You've got to receive the free gift. You've got to say, Lord, I want it. And so now look at the picture. Bartimaeus comes to Jesus, or they go get Bartimaeus and they bring him to Jesus. And Jesus says to him, he asked him, this is verse 41, saying, what do you want from me? Or what do you want for, oh, excuse me, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? He's waiting for you to ask. He, he's, he's not just going to save you because you're there and you have a need. He waits for you to ask. You don't have because you don't ask. Ask and you will receive. 
This is the importance of asking. You say, well, why do I have to ask? Why does it matter? If asking is the way that you receive, then ask. Then don't be afraid to ask. If it's the way you receive, then ask. If that's all you have to do to ask. He's not asking you to do an Irish dance to be saved. He's asking you to receive him, to ask, what do you want me to do for you? And you say, Lord, I want you to save me. I want you to give me eternity. I need you to, I need you to help my family. God, do a work in my life in this area. This is not only for salvation, but to, in, in total. What do you want me to do for you? And he said, now, now Barnabas could have went, what do you think I need? He could have went, I'm blind. It's, I, I think he's showing, he's showing us something here. And he said to him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. So he asked him plainly, I need my sight to be open. And again, this is a picture of the blindness in the world. And when someone says, Lord, I need my sight, I need my eyes to be open spiritually. Jesus said to him, verse 42, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. His faith. He believed Jesus. And because he believed Jesus, he received his sight. What does it mean to have faith? a lot of confusion about that. Part, part of it is there's a ton of false doctrine being taught about faith. People teach that you got to have a lot of faith to do great things. At one point, the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus responded with, how long do I have to be with you guys? You don't get it. If you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and it will be done. Now he's speaking, into an, he's speaking as an analogy, right? No one has ever tossed a mountain into the sea by faith. Catalinas, go to the Pacific. You hear anything? I guess I don't have enough faith. He's talking about mountains in your life. He's talking about things you need help with in your life. That if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, people say, well, I don't have, I'm not like you, someone said to me once. I'm not, I don't have a lot of faith. Well, first of all, you don't know a lot about me. I'm more skeptical than you think. I'm a very skeptical person. When people tell me something supernatural to them, the first thing that goes on in my mind is, no, it didn't. That didn't happen. I'm very skeptical. And I was skeptical. I'm skeptical of God. That's why I'm very aware that when we have doubts, that if we're following the truth, then we can scrutinize it. The truth will always hold up to scrutiny. And so if you are having doubts, then go and check it out. See whether or not there is really evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. If there's evidence for his existence, if there's evidence for his crucifixion. The Roman historians, not Jewish, Roman historians tell us that Pontius Pilate crucified Jesus. There's evidence. It can hold up to these things. Faith, um, I'm just going to use one analogy here. And this is an analogy I use a lot on faith, okay? And if I've used it before, forgive me, all right? I try to mix it up sometimes. But the Bible says in Hebrews 11 that by faith, the children of Israel kept the Passover. The Passover was the 10th plague. We don't re usually remember that. And a death angel is going to go through Egypt. A death angel. What's that all about? Hope I never run into one. A death angel is going to go through Egypt and going to kill all of the firstborn sons, even in the Hebrew households, unless... They bring a lamb into their home, which Jesus is our Passover lamb. The death angel passes over us because we receive Christ. And that's what communion's all about. It's Passover. 
It was instituted on Passover. Jesus was, it was a Passover meal when he instituted communion to us because we take Jesus into our lives that the death angel would pass over us. And so one guy, and, and then they were to smear the blood on the outside of the door of the lamb that they're going to eat that night, okay? Um, and this is what Jesus meant when he said, you got to eat my flesh. You got to drink my blood. He's talking about Passover. So he, uh, the first guy hears Moses say, this is what you got to do. And the first guy goes, death angel? God's going to kill my firstborn son? I don't, even, I don't even believe God would do that. Unless I kill this poor little lamb and I put his blood, he wants me to smear blood on my door. So people are going to walk up to my door and go, who got butchered here? This poor little lamb that we're eating. And we smeared its blood on the door. What a weird thing to do. But I do kind of like my firstborn son. And I guess I should do it as an insurance policy. I don't think God would kill him. I don't think a death angel will take my son if I don't have the blood smeared on the door. But I'm going to do it. And so he reluctantly does it. And I'm going to go over here to be the other guy. So the other guy, when he hears Moses say, you've got to keep the Passover, he goes, a death angel? Going to kill my son? I love my son. And so he, he gets the lamb, brings it into his house. On the right day, he slaughters it and he smears the blood, believing he's saving his son. He's got all the confidence in the world. There's no doubt in his mind that he has saved his son by putting it on the door. The night comes and the death angel passes over. Which one of those two had their son saved? Both. Why? Because they both did it. Faith is believing God and you do it. When God told Moses at 80 years old, your, your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky. His name at this point was Abram, father. His, his descendants are going to be the stars of the sky. He's 80 years old. He doesn't have any kids. And God says, your descendants are going to be like the stars of the sky. And he didn't go, good one, God. That, what a good joke. That's great. My name's father and you're like my descendants. I don't have any kids. I get it. But the Bible says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. When you believe God, do you believe him? Do you believe him when he says he's the only way? Do you believe him when he says that he died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe him when he says that you can invite him into your life? Now, this is, and I, I referred earlier to spiritual warfare. This is spiritual warfare. And when we put on our armor, this is in Ephesians, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual hosts in dark places. And we're to put on our armor, helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, belt of truth, sword of the spirit, shield of faith. And... What did I leave out? Boots prepared with the gospel. Everywhere we go, we go to reveal light to people. Everywhere we go, the Holy Spirit flows out of us that people can have their spiritual blindness taken away. I want to read you one verse in closing. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. But even if the gospel is veiled, Paul says, it is veiled to those who are perishing whose minds the God of this world has blinded, who do not believe. The reason people in the world don't believe is because the God of this world, Satan, that we battle against, has blinded their eyes. You think, well, they're just non-believers. Well, they're blinded. It says, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. After Jesus forgave the sins of the woman caught in the act of adultery, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me 
shall not walk in darkness, but walk in light. There's your spiritual analogy. We are spiritually blind until we come to Christ and then the light comes in. Our spiritual eyes are opened and all of a sudden we begin to have a deep understanding about truth. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for what we find in this miracle. At first reading, it seems like just another blind guy that Jesus healed. But as we begin to look at the details, we see so much more that this is a picture of how we receive from you. And may we receive from you what we need. May our eyes be opened and may we be used by you taking the gospel to the world that is lost. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.